Welcome to International History Declassified, the podcast that provides an insider's view of the history of the post-war world and the historians who study it. International History Declassified is a production of the History and Public Policy Program at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hello, and thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Peter Beerstaker. And I'm your co-host, Keon Byrne. The Wilson Center's History and Public Policy Program uses archival sources and history to improve understanding of important global dynamics, trends in international relations, and U.S. foreign policy. The program is home to the Digital Archive, a free online resource of newly declassified materials from around the world, available and accessible at www.digitalarchive.org. In our first three episodes, we'll be speaking with three historians about the Korean War, which began 70 years ago this month. Neither Pete nor I are experts on this topic, but by speaking with experts and examining their sources and methods, we'll explore the most recent research being done in the field while providing the context, significance, and current debate on events. Welcome! In today's episode, we will be talking with Dr. Sergei Radchenko. Sergey is Professor of International Relations at Cardiff University and is a Wilson Center Global Fellow. He has written extensively on Soviet and Chinese foreign policies during the Cold War, and today we're excited to speak with him about what he's discovered in his many, many years of research in archives all around the globe. We spoke with Sergey live via Zoom earlier. Thanks for joining us, Sergey. One of the most common themes we've been covering in the series is the role of Stalin's decision-making uh, in, in the invasion of, of North Korea. Um, is there any insight that you can provide us into his thinking uh, during this time period leading up to the launch of the of the North Korean invasion? Uh, and what does any uh, documentary evidence you've seen reveal about his thought processes as he was giving the quote-unquote green light uh, to, to invade? Well, we haven't advanced all that far from the 1990s when this question was first probed by various historians on the basis of new re newly released Russian sources. Uh, Stalin was a notoriously secretive man, and the, his thought processes were, or were unclear even to those around him. Um, so it's very difficult by looking at the, at the very, very sparse historical record uh, that we still have today to say exactly what Stalin was thinking. That said, uh, several theories have emerged around Stalin's decision-making. As we, as we know, of course, in 1949, as late as the fall of 1949, Stalin was adamantly against uh, the idea of North Korea invading South Korea. Uh, Kim Il-sung had repeatedly asked his permission. He needed Stalin's permission to invade, and Stalin denied it time and again. In January 1950, Stalin changed his mind, and historians have been trying to figure out what exactly happened. Uh, Mao Zedong was in Moscow at that time. We have some of the discussions that Mao and Stalin had, although not all. Uh, some of the records are still missing, or maybe they're just not there at all. From the records that we do have, we do not see any kind of discussion on Korea between Mao Zedong and Stalin. So was it something that, that, that Stalin decided while Mao was there? Um, that made you know that 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 made him more optimistic about the, the about chances of uh, about North Korea's North Korea's invasion of South Korea possibly possibly that's I mean that's a, that's a, that's that's one possibility um, one possibility that has been broached uh, was that uh, now the Soviet Union had an atomic bomb 
uh, and so Stalin could be could feel more reasonably more reassured about uh, uh, the North Koreans invading South Korea now that the Soviet Union could deter effectively deter the United States. Uh, other ideas that have been put forward was that Stalin may have had um, uh, may have been misled by the statement that Dean Acheson made about um, about uh, excluding. Korea from the America from America's defensive perimeter. So all of those ideas have been put on the table by historians. We don't have clear evidence that Stalin decided for those particular reasons. All we know is that after in January 1950, after Kim Il Sung uh, came up again to the Soviet representative uh, Shtikov in Pyongyang and asked again, can we invade South Korea? Stalin's response was through a telegram, yeah, we can think about it. So let's think about it. This matter requires preparation, as Stalin put it. Um, there's one interesting piece of evidence that I just wanted to highlight because it is absolutely not in the 1990s record. This is just something that came up relatively recently. Not many people know about it. And I don't know myself as a historian. I looked at this evidence. I don't, I don't know what to make of it. But in 1956, when, um, when uh, Anastas Mikoyan, who was one of the leaders in the Soviet uh, in, uh, in the, of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, when he visited China and met with Mao Zedong. At one stage, Mao Zedong asked him, uh, why did you decide to uh, agree to Kim Il-sung's invasion of South Korea? I'm paraphrasing now from this document. And you know what Mikoyan said? Mikoyan said that we have received intelligence um, that was intercepted uh, by our intelligence service that uh, there was a telegram that was sent by uh, MacArthur in Japan to the United States, which indicated that the United States would not get involved in the war in Korea if it broke out. And this is what Mikoyan cited as the reason that for Stalin ultimately agreeing to um, Kim Il-sung's invasion of South Korea, because that basically meant that uh, the chance of this war exploding uh, into something much bigger with American involvement in it would be so much less. But I don't know. I have um, approached several historians about this. I said, okay, we have this new evidence. What do we make of this? What, what kind of exchanges uh, could have prompted this sort of, um, this, this sort of uh, comment by uh, Anastas Mikoyan, and they have not arrived at a uh, at, at an answer so far. So, like, as, well, just to sum up, you know, the evidence is not clear. There are bits and pieces of uh, new documents that are trickling in. Uh, what we can say is that Stalin felt with reasonable certainty that the United States would not get involved on the ground in South Korea as he gave the green light uh, to the North Koreans to invade. But he also, now that the Soviet Union and China signed a Treaty of Alliance, as we know, Stalin in, 19, in January 1950 agreed to that, he also knew that if the war went off the rails, uh, then perhaps he could also count on China to help him in this war, because now China was the Soviet Union's ally in Asia. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, one of the things that we've sort of um, been discussing with, with Sam and Chuck, whom we spoke with before, um, is sort of how kind of intertwined the thinking was between particularly the three communist uh, states and, and groups um, in sort of making the final decision to go in. Um, but we've also been uh, interested in how the war has been perceived moving forward. So I know that you've kind of studied uh, the Soviet Union more broadly. 
Um, how has the Korean War uh, legacy uh, impacted Russian thinking and how has Russian thinking developed over the years, um, both immediately following the Korean War and uh, in the decades that followed it? Um, was it something that was you know, on the top of, of decision makers' minds and moving forward in other nations or was it something that simply you know, as part of the past and, and didn't really play a role in their thinking. Well, you know how the Korean War, sometimes called the Forgotten War in the United States, um, in, in the Soviet Union and in Russia, it was always the Forgotten War because the Soviet Union barely participated in it. Uh, Stalin was willing to fight this war to the last Chinese, so to speak, but he didn't want to get involved. Uh, himself and he was in fact very reluctant once the Americans actually intervened in the war and he he of course called on the Chinese to also intervene uh, when uh, things started to go wrong for Kim Il-sung uh, the Chinese were expecting considerable support from Stalin and Stalin refused uh, to all uh, to provide the support eventually he did he did provide some air cover for um, Chinese troops, but generally speaking, Soviet involvement in this war was fairly limited in terms of the actual bloodshed. Um, he did provide uh, weapons to the Chinese, not free of charge, uh, for which the Chinese later blamed him, saying, you know, well, uh, Stalin was basically an arms merchant uh, sending us uh, weapons so as we were fighting for, you know, fighting for revolution, fighting against American imperialism in Korea. But ultimately, because Soviet involvement was fairly limited, uh, the war does not have any really re real purchase with the Russian population or Russian historical memories. It were, you know, I'm, I'm sure if you just asked around in Russia, what do people think about the Korean War? A lot of people would just not be able to answer this question because they never heard of the Korean War to begin with. Uh, so so that, that's where we are. Uh, in this regard, there's a huge difference between, for example, the Chinese perception of the Korean War and the Russian perception of the Korean War. That is because the Chinese were on the ground sending people's volunteers. Um, and so that even today for Chinese policy towards North Korea, the Korean War has so much, such just much greater importance than it ever did for, uh, for Russia. When Stalin died in 1953, the Soviet leaders, the new Soviet leaders, moved fairly quickly to bring this war to close because they understood it as a completely futile exercise. Uh, the war was already in a stalemate for a number of years, and it made no sense whatsoever for the new Soviet leadership. They wanted to improve relations with the West, uh, and they thought that by bringing this war to a swift end, uh, they could take one regional conflict out of the broader Cold War equation and, and perhaps uh, have a, a broader detente with the United States. That's how we ended up in Geneva in 1954. And they brought the Chinese along with them. That said, the Chinese also were tired of the war for a good reason. They were, uh, they were actually fighting on the ground and it, it cost them a, a, a huge uh, amount in terms of lives lost. So that's, uh, yeah, that, that, it, does that answer your question? Yeah, definitely it does. I mean, it, it's really interesting. I think um, it, it's it says a lot. I mean, I, I don't want to editorialize too much, but it is pretty interesting that it's sort of the forgotten war for the two great powers who are um, theoretically, you know, fighting this ideological war against one another and yet don't seem to um, um, have focused on it the way the, the Chinese and the Koreans have.
Um, well, that, it was a huge tragedy for Korea, of course. You know, the Koreans were yeah. the ones who suffered most from this war. Um, you know, millions of lives were lost, and 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 just just there was so so much damage that it has. And of course, you know, Korea is still divided even today. This is the legacies of the Korean War for Korea. But for Russia, well, uh, the Soviet Union, it, it, even after the war, it was still North Korea's ally, and it was uh, interested in the survival of of North Korea. As a state and that continued actually until the 1980s until in the 1980s the Soviets suddenly realized well why why don't we just reach out to South Korea this was under Mikhail Gorbachev and they decided that um, uh, relationship with South Korea was just so much uh, worth so much more in terms of the um, uh, you know financial benefits or economic benefits etc so yeah they they moved away from North Korea uh, for about a decade uh, and it was only with Putin's return to power, or rather Putin coming into power, that the uh, that the Russians tried to reestablish their presence in North Korea as a kind of you know own, owners broker or, or maybe some kind of a, a friend in need. Uh, but they have not been so particularly successful, actually. Great, that's 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 fascinating. I'm really and I'm eager to hear about. Uh what it is how it is perceived uh, in in the country these days and and thank you for that um just moving a little bit more broadly uh beyond the the scope of the korean war uh we'd like to talk a little bit about your uh, experience working in the various uh, archives in russia um which ones have you used which do you think are the sort of the key uh, archives for understanding the the post-war world for understanding cold war history today well, uh, it, just to bring, give you a brief overview, in the uh, early 1990s, when the Soviet Union collapsed and Russia was going through this period of openness, uh, the Russian archives uh, were in a state of chaos, but they were also in a state of open chaos. So historians were able to get access to a lot of records uh, that were subsequently closed. Um, after a while, in fact, by 1993, Russian archival officials realized that this kind of openness would hurt them as it were because it would allow people to present some kind of you know incorrect um, take on Russian history so they shut down the archives more or less uh, which uh, forced scholars to look for alternatives to the Russian archives um, and, and by this I mean the central archives that's where most of the documents were so like many scholars who of course at that time I was writing my uh, my PhD dissertation, like many scholars, I I depended on on the on the Russian archives, but also could not access them. So that re, that forced me to go around and look in different places and find some interesting stuff in in uh, in archives all around the world, but especially in the social in the former socialist uh, camp. Uh, that is how, for example, I ended up in Mongolia. I was one of the first, uh, if not the first scholar allow allowed into some of the Mongolian archives. And lo and behold, what do we find there? Fantastic documents that reflect on different aspects of uh, Russian or Soviet foreign policy during the Cold War, or for example, on relations with China, uh, etc. Um, uh, like many other Cold War historians, I went to different archives in Eastern Europe, uh, struggling uh, in many instances because of linguistic difficulties, but you know, getting access in places like Budapest uh, uh, or Warsaw, or indeed in some of the uh, some of the uh, former republics of the Soviet Union. Ukraine, for example, has been a remarkable place to do archival research. I haven't myself done any archival research there, but I know of people who have, and they had remarkable access there. Now, I did a lot of research in Russia's regional archives. 
as well as in Central Asia. Now, there you would get um, historians, rather, uh, when, when those, do, you know, during the Soviet period, uh, documents would be sent from Moscow and, and settle in the local archives. And sometimes they were sent back, sometimes they were destroyed, but you could still, you could still obtain some interesting insights about um, Soviet foreign policy, but limited, limited. Maybe some regional aspects were highlighted in, a, in better ways. I still remember my trip to uh, Kazakhstan presidential archives where I, um, uh, I asked the question about China. I was looking for documents from China. And um, um, uh, the answer I got was, no, everything is classified. You're not allowed to get anything at all. And I said, well, what do you mean? What if I just want documents from, say, 17th century or 18th century? They said, no, everything is classified. So that was their approach, for example, in China. But in Kyrgyzstan, rather in, in, in Kazakhstan, but in Kyrgyzstan nearby, in, 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 in Kyrgyzstan, I uh, received excellent uh, access, again, relating to uh, China, problem, uh, China, China materials. So it really depended from place to place. In Mongolia, I had very, very good access as well. Um, and, and then things changed in Moscow. So from approximately 2013, 2014, the Russians have started this massive declassification. Uh, this is counterintuitive. You would think with uh, the Russian government becoming ever more oppressive, you would not expect that from Putin's regime to open up the archives, but this is indeed what happened. Uh, I can you know, talk later more about the reasons why that happened, but one way or another, now uh, Russia, uh, no, the central Russian archives, and by this I mean the um, both the state archive and what was used to be the Communist Party archives have have released a huge amount of documents, um, uh, which now allow us to revisit practically every aspect of the Cold War with new documentation. So in recent years, I have been going to Moscow well prior to COVID, uh, which has of course put a temporary end to this, but uh, I was going to Moscow several times a year getting documents just by you know just hundreds of pages and thousands of pages and reading this stuff and just realizing how much out there there is that we still don't know about how much out there there is that historians still need to get to well you've done an excellent job sort of uh <laughs> um predicting our next questions because we are interested in sort of what's missing but before we get into that um you mentioned, you know, discussing why a country like Russia would open up. Uh, can you explore that a little bit? So this is interesting um, because you would not expect this, right? You would expect um, a country that, for example, has moved towards greater democracy or openness to open up their archives uh, because they feel confident about their history, et cetera, and they're not, they don't worry about the you know, historians finding some kind of information that would embarrass the regime. Well, in Russia, uh, there has been a kind of, there's been a perception that the West in particular is, is falsifying Russia's history in relation to the Second World War, for example, or different episodes in Soviet history throughout the Cold War. Uh, so because of that, the government, and Putin in particular actually, has been a force behind this, there's been this push for 
declassification of documents on different aspects of Russian history in order to prove to the West that no, Russia was uh, not what it's imagined to be, etc. Uh, so I think what we're seeing here is a, a largely a, a consequence of this sort of attitude. Um, uh, this is a, a consequence of the willingness of um, the Russian government to allow uh, scholars to come in and to actually see the documents for themselves, and it's 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 admirable. You know, I think I think this is very good. Now, I would have to also make a reservation here. Not everything is being declassified. Yeah, so there's been a huge declassification effort, and a lot of documents have become part of the public domain now in Russia. In fact, many of them are being scanned and put online, which is even better. But uh, still, a lot of documents are not accessible. So, for example, intelligence materials held by the uh, by the Russian uh, by the Foreign Intelligence Service archives are completely closed to historians. Party materials, for example, Politburo records post-1965, are also generally held by the presidential archive and are not being transferred over uh, to the uh, to open archives where scholars may consult them. So huge steps have been made, strides in the in the, in the declassification effort, uh, but there's still a lot that remains to be done. Uh, but still, now is the best time, I would say, in the last 30 years to study Russian and Soviet history because the archives have become so open. That's really fascinating. Has anything new come out or have, do you know anybody who's working on the Korean War in these sort of recent releases? You mentioned one document earlier, but has there been, uh, if not a flood of new information, um, any somewhat interesting kind of revelations or anybody working on those revelations? Uh, well, a lot of materials on Stalin, for example, are now available at the uh, archive of um, social and political history, so-called Orgaspi. Now, uh, there's, I don't know to what extent people have worked through the documents that have been declassified. I have not done so myself. I plan to do so in due course, I want to see uh, how, how much new stuff there is out there. Now, I know when I looked at the records on the Korean War, I noticed that some things have not been declassified, so some things are still being held back, and I'll tell you exactly, in fact, what I think is being held back. The spring 1950 visit by Kim Il-sung to Moscow when the preparations were made for the invasion of South Korea, that stuff I have not found. And in fact, you can see, though, that there are gaps in the record, and you can see that something is still there. So I'm counting uh, on, on it being there and being released one day, uh, but it hasn't been so far, although I have spoken to other Russian historians who have had complete access to the archives and so they claim, and they also say, well, it's not even, they're not even in the secret documents. So even when all the documents, you know, we call Cold War historians really look for smoking guns all the time. They're just saying, oh yeah, you know, a new document will be released and this will change our perspective or our interpretation of the Cold War. Nothing like this will happen. Yeah, we know it's not going to happen. Um, uh, new documents, of course, there's stuff out there. It's still hidden. New documents may trick in still on the Korean War. I doubt that uh, that fundamentally we will have, you know, suddenly in our hands the uh, complete story of why Stalin decided to give green light to Kim Il-sung. That's just not going to happen. That said, not specifically on the Korean War, but of course in many other aspects of Soviet foreign policy during the Cold War, there are fascinating elements um, and fascinating documents that are being released. Um, just to give you a few examples, 
there's amazing stuff uh, on the uh, on the Soviet involvement in the Middle East uh, during the Yom Kippur War, for example, in 1973, um, in October 1973. There's great stuff that shows uh, Soviet leaders thinking about different aspects of how you know of how to manage this crisis that threatened to become a nuclear confrontation between the Soviet Union and the United States. There is new stuff on Cuba. You would think, wow, so much stuff has been written about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Who el- you know, who can find anything new? Uh, but it turns out that there is new stuff there. So, for example, uh, Khrushchev's various conversations have been declassified now, and it turns out uh, that uh, during the those days in October 1962, when the world came to the brink of nuclear war, Khrushchev had frequent discussions, not just at the Politburo, some of those records are very patchy and we cannot really say exactly what was being said and by whom, uh, but also in meetings with various visiting dignitaries, etc. And sometimes, you know, just reading this material gives you a new perspective, new understanding of how Khrushchev was thinking about this, about this crisis and why he ultimately decided to back off. Um, uh, I'll give you another interesting example, and that'll be my third. I mean, I could go on forever. I can give a million examples of of new documents and how they matter, but uh, I'll just give one example because I think it's actually quite interesting. In in the in the nineteen nineties, one of the reasons why uh, the why why the Russian government decided to close down the archive was that there was a uh, there was a particular it was there, it, there was a document that one american scholar found in the russian archives about about the american um, uh, prisoners of rather american yeah american prisoners of war in vietnam and this document when compared to what the vietnamese were actually telling the americans uh, you know, the numbers were different. So it exploded in, in, in a huge scandal and there was a story in the New York Times and uh, the archives were closed partly because of that. Well, now they've reopened the stuff. They've reopened the Vietnamese files at the Russian archives. Um, and uh, not only can you see the documents that were, that originally caused this, con- uh, this whole uh, con- uh, you know, scandal, but you can also see some things that you would not be able to see in Vietnam. So, for example, you have records of uh, some Politburo speeches, speeches made by Politburo members of the Vietnamese Workers' Party during the height of the Vietnam War. This stuff is not available in Hanoi. You can go to Hanoi, you won't be able to see any of this. I have no idea how the Russians got hold of Vietnamese Politburo records, but they're there in the, in translation. So you can actually say something new about the Vietnamese, uh, about the Vietnamese take on the, on the Vietnam War at the height of the Vietnam War. Here we're talking about the, the dates of the documents are about 1968-1969. It's a fascinating story. You know, uh, just just as a short preview, most of these documents actually deal with China and how the Vietnamese were trying to navigate the Sino-Soviet rift and how they interpreted the Chinese, you know, Chinese pressure, pressure from Beijing at the height of the uh, Vietnam War. So this is just, these are just some examples. You can see there's just so much out there. Fascinating. That's that's. I I would actually love to. Maybe we could do a separate podcast series of just you listing those examples uh, for uh, for for many many hours. I think we could have a whole a whole a whole different series, uh, which would be wonderful. Um, I could great. go on forever. 
I, yeah, that's the danger of these, you know, once we start talking that we're going to, you know, sort of branch off and have a million other ideas for things that we want to talk about and focus on. Uh, but that's the fun of it as well. Um, sort of just, uh, we want to sort of wrap things up and, and uh, ask you to sort of speculate for a little bit and, uh, you know, think a little bit about the, uh, the future of Cold War history and, and uh, the historiography of, of studying the Cold War. Uh, what materials are, are you most uh, eager to examine next? Not necessarily li uh, limited to Russian archives, but what is still out there? What, what, or what do you hope is still out there? What do you, you hope to, to discover in the next 10, 20, 30 years of, of uh, scouring the archives? Well, uh, Cold War history is an is a interesting, interesting crossroads at the moment. There was great excitement about this in the 1990s when first discoveries were made, when those archival documents from Russia appeared. In the, in the two, you know, 2000s, as you recall, there was great excitement about Chinese documents. The Chinese archives came into, uh, into use, and then they were later uh, closed off again. So now, again, we do not have access to those documents. Uh, but uh, so much was written about the Cold War, uh, whole historiography, uh, so-called new Cold, Cold War historiography appeared uh, as historians engaged with this new evidence. And, and then, you know, this of course continues, this continues, but I sense, I sense that there's something of a decline of interest already in the Cold War today. Why is this? I don't know. Actually, it's ironic in a sense because, of course, today when you when you look outside of uh, uh, academia, you look at what people talk about, you know, on CNN, they they talk about the Cold War. We're we're back to the Cold War now. It's the Chinese that, are, or maybe the Russians are together with the Chinese. There is you know waging a new Cold War. Uh, I'm not going to go into that. Yeah, whether it's a, this new Cold War is the same as the old Cold War is completely different, etc. I don't really want to go into that discussion. Uh, it's it's a big can of worms, but it, it is interesting at the same time that that in in terms of academic studies of the Cold War, we haven't really had that much. Um, uh, there's a there's I think I sense a decline of interest here. I don't know why. I don't know what explains this. Um, at the same time, there's an, you know, new documents are appearing. There's just so much more out there that needs to be processed by historians. Uh, for me, you know, when I go to the Russian archives, you go into the reading room, you see familiar faces, you see people, you see just a dozen people who've been sitting there for years on. Yeah, a lot of them are actually, most of them are foreign scholars. Interestingly, Russian historians somehow are also not taking very keen interest in this. But, you know, you see people like Mark Kramer. Oh, Mike, Mark Kramer is always there in the Russian archives, you know. Um, <laughs> I, would, I would name a few others. But anyway, you see the same people who go back and, and sit there for for months on end and get this new materials. But actually, uh, this is still, the interest is, is, is fairly limited and I don't see a huge spike in this uh, in, in anytime soon. In fact, now, of course, the Russian archives are closed. I don't know what will happen now uh, going forward when we're all going to be able to go back there and discover some new things about some unknown things about the Cold War that we really want to know. Uh, is there is there public interest in having more Cold War histories published? I think so. 
I, I want to believe that. I want to believe that. I think if more people work on this, now would be the time to do that. I think there is actually a lot of public interest. I don't see this happening, but I am myself working on a Cold War history. Um, I'm working on a book that starts in 1945 and goes all the way through the Cold War, uh, actually beyond the Cold War. And this is another point I wanted to talk about because now, increasingly, Materials on the post-Cold War world are also opening up in different archives, not least in Russia. In Russia, I had access uh, to some documents that are as recent as year 2000. I mean, Putin comes up in those documents already, yeah? So the Cold War is really ancient history by comparison. Um, and in my current project, what I do is I, I, I'm trying to merge the Cold War with the post-Cold War. I know this is, you know, this is great heresy from the point of view of traditional Cold War historians because you're supposed to stop in 1989 and not go beyond that. That's when everything ended and we were living in a brave new world. Uh, but I'm looking at it from a different kind of angle and I'm trying to map out Russian foreign policy during the Cold War, Soviet foreign policy during the Cold War, and Russian foreign policy after the Cold War. I want to see the continuities in my current project. That's what I'm working on now. Uh, and the material base is certainly there. So the documents are coming through. And as you, as, you, as you read these documents from the 1990s, you realize that lots of things changed, but also some things did not change. So what I think will happen with the historiography, I may be wrong. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm a historian. I'm not a prophet. I don't look into the future. I don't know what's going to happen. But my thinking is that the divide between the Cold War and the post-Cold War will start to uh, disappear a little bit as historians have greater access to the materials of the 1990s um, and, and that we will have a more, you know, we'll see a greater continuity between the two periods in the studies that are still going to be produced in the future. And certainly my study is going to be there very soon as well. Uh, I see those continuities. Well, that's fascinating. I mean, uh, definitely something that we all have a personal <laughs> interest and stake in uh, moving forward, but um, I, I think you really hit the nail on the head as much as you, you know, look to the past more than to the future. I think, I think you had some good insights into uh, kind of where the future of Cold War history is headed. Uh, I think this has been a really phenomenal conversation. Um, I think we, we covered a lot of interesting things and I think Pete is exactly right. Uh, we'll have to bring you back and we'll just sort of discuss every single archive that you've been to and, and uh, <laughs> I will, what we can I, I, will, I will tell you that my, my, my favorite archive that I've been to was the archive of Laos. Yeah. So I will tell you that story. This is a great Okay. Story. Yeah. We'll do a whole series. <laughs> we'll just, uh, <laughs> international <laughs> archives that Sergei has visited in the pre-COVID <laughs> right. world. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, this episode ends on a bit of a cliffhanger, but like we said, we hope to have Sergey back for a future episode sometime soon. As always, you can get in touch with us by emailing coldwar at wilsoncenter.org. We'd like to thank Graham Norwood for this podcast's music. You've been listening to International History Declassified, a podcast focused on history, historians, their sources, and their methods. International History Declassified is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. And for more information on a world of topics, issues, and ideas, please visit wilsoncenter.org. International History Declassified is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars.